Amen. You're welcome to move your chairs however you like to face the front, or I guess if you, if you don't want to face the front, you could move your chairs to face another direction. Um, so I always try to, you know, scrounge around through my bookshelf, through my Kindle library to, to find ideas, illustrations, themes to kind of pull together where I sense God leading in the scripture. And I, and I, uh, I read a book not long ago by former uh, four-star Marine Corps General Jim Mattis. His book uh, was titled Call Sign Chaos. I learned that his call sign is chaos because when he was a colonel, his subordinates used to say, the colonel has another outstanding solution, <laughs> which maybe they said a little tongue-in-cheek because sometimes he was known to do rather crazy things, uh, but he became a four-star general, so clearly he was successful. Um, but the subtitle is Learning to Lead. It's a book on leadership, and he reflected on the wide uh, array of different leadership experiences he had, from leading a small group of men to a whole battalion to eventually taking a, a key leadership role in the wars in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, he ended his career by then spending two years as a secretary of defense. So he saw leadership at every imaginable level of military service. And one of the themes that he said to successful leadership no matter what the, you know, no matter what the scale of your leadership, no matter what the specific task is, one of the lessons he said is across the board, good leadership and successful outcomes require brilliance in the basics. In the Marine Corps, they say every soldier is a rifleman. That's one of the basics. I heard a story uh, from professional sports. Apparently, LeBron James during the season sleeps 12 hours a night because he says rest is critical for recuperation, is critical for the hard work that wins championships. He would call his sleeping brilliance in the basics. I, uh, I, like, I like comedy, I follow comedians. Jerry Seinfeld allegedly committed early in his career to writing a joke every single day and still does it to this day. And he said, if I'm gonna be a good comedian, Brilliance in the basics means writing jokes, because apparently jokes and comedians have something to do with one another. But I, I heard that phrase, and it, it kind of gripped me, and I thought to myself, what about faith? What does it look like to have brilliance in the basics in our life of faith? And I want to suggest that as we dive into the next chapter of the book of Hebrews. This is our sixth week in our sermon series, Jesus First, studying chapter by chapter through the whole book of Hebrews. Um, I want to suggest that I think the main idea, the main challenge we're going to hear from the author of this book today is a challenge to maintain brilliance in the basics of our faith. And yet, as we'll see, the challenge to let that rootedness in the basics also drive us forward into maturity. If you want to go there in your Bibles now, uh, we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, which in the NIV, the section is titled, Warning Against Falling Away. Uh, this is our third of four different warnings. Just as a brief reminder, the author has started by talking about how Jesus is greater than 
basically everything else. Greater than the angels themselves who speak on behalf of God. Greater than Moses, the greatest of all God's leaders in the Old Testament. Jesus brings a greater salvation than God has ever shown before. Jesus is the final word of God and his covenant is the final covenant of God. That's been the setup. And now, from the end of chapter four, all the way to the end of chapter 10, we get the longest single focus of the whole book of Hebrews. We're gonna talk about this for the next few weeks. The author says, because of how great Jesus is, we can know for sure that Jesus is a great high priest. And the nature of Jesus' work as the great high priest interceding for God's people, that is in some ways the main idea of the whole book of Hebrews. It takes up the biggest chunk of actual words on page from the end of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 10. And this warning comes just after it's been introduced, but we're still kind of on the front end of this new topic. So that's a little bit about where we've been, a little bit about where we're going. Uh, Let's read now the third of the four warnings of the book of Hebrews. Uh, The words will be on the screen, or you can look at your own Bibles. This is chapter 5, verse 11 and following. Uh, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Ouch. (laughs) In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop, useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work 
and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. There is so much we could talk about in this passage, but here was my line of thinking. In the NIV, this passage was broken into four paragraphs. So I want to talk about what I think is the one main point from each of the four paragraphs, and I have summarized those as good and evil, elementary or basic, and mature, impossible, and better things. So, first paragraph, we start off with good and evil. This is, the, this is the beginning of the warning. And the author says, hey, 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 don't get stuck forgetting the basics, but rather grow up into maturity. And it's very interesting because he gives us a definition of Christian maturity. I don't think this is a comprehensive definition. I don't think the author is trying to say this is everything involved in Christian maturity, and yet it is a specific aspect of a mature Christian faith. And the author says it has something to do with teaching the teaching of righteousness, which by constant use, people have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So to some degree, maturity in the Christian faith has, has to do with the ability to distinguish between good and evil. I happen to have just read a book about distinguishing between good and evil. This was totally unplanned, but it's amazing how you get to the passage of the week, and I read the passage of the week, and I go, oh, what do you know? This book was just recommended to me, and I was reading it. It's a, it's a secular book by a philosopher named Jonathan Haidt, who studies moral philosophy. He wrote a book, really clever title. Um, it's called, next slide, there we go. It's called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Huh, who knew that was a thing? Thank you. If you hadn't laughed, I'd have been like, what did you? But aside from his main point of kind of a social analysis of some of the challenges our country is facing in divisiveness, he starts the book by giving a pretty extensive survey of the history of moral thought. And I want to highlight just a couple things. He starts with one of the oldest and in some ways simplest versions of moral thinking, often called utilitarianism. And if you ascribe to this level of moral thinking, morality, the difference between good and evil, is basically one command. Do no harm. This school of thought says, as long as you're not harming anyone, then it's fine. That can get a little complicated, but it's really as, as straightforward of a litmus test as you get. Height doesn't buy it. He thinks it's too simplistic. He believes there's actually three categories of moral reasoning. He says all morality can be broken into autonomy, the right of individuals to happiness, health, safety, community, the fact that we're not just individuals. We are parts of groups, and there is a morality connected not just to individuals, but to communities of people, and then to divinity. We aren't just a biological organism living on the earth. We live in a world created by a God, and there is such thing as the sacred, which must be honored. He also, in his book, acknowledges that each 
religion in the world has some core to morality, and certainly Christ gave a clear central to Christian moral living when he said, I'm giving you a new command. And if Jesus had just one word on morality, it would be this. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, here's the point of this all. I'm not expecting anybody to land on a comprehensive philosophy of morality based on a survey of history. But rather, what struck me as I thought about Height's book, and I thought about the author of Hebrews saying, by constant use, we have to learn about righteousness, and we have to be able to distinguish between good and evil. It, it struck me that this, this project of trying to live a good, moral, righteous life, it, it's a difficult thing to do. Moral living requires deliberate thought and action. It, it, deli- it requires some hard work and some intentional growth on our part. So the, the first thing that the author of Hebrews is saying is this warning about falling away, which says if we're going to stay faithful to Christ and stay committed to the basics, we must also let those basics lead us towards future growth. We can never be satisfied simply staying where we are. As many preachers have said, the world around us is much more like one of those moving walkways in the, in the, in the airport, except instead of moving us the direction we want to go, it's constantly moving the opposite direction. And if we're not walking forward, we are very likely to end up moving backwards. Which brings us to the second point that the author makes. If there's a warning to pursue maturity, what does the author really have in mind about the difference between the basics of faith and growing towards a maturity in faith? The the core line in the middle of it said, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward toward maturity. As I was thinking about this, it struck me, you know, I think we actually all know the way that really any aspect of life, there's a starting point, which is good, right, and necessary, but ideally you should be moving, growing forward towards future growth. I've used the illustration before. Um, Imagine your six-year-old son or daughter or niece or nephew or grandson or granddaughter or child of a friend, whomever it is. Imagine a little six-year-old kid comes up to you and asks you, where do babies come from? It's a question you maybe have heard or will hear in your life. And of course, your first response is, ask your mother. She'll give you the answer. But if the kid pins you down, maybe you'll come up with an answer. Take a second in your mind. Think about what would you say to a little six-year-old. You know, you might say something like, well, if a mommy and a daddy love each other very much, then they can make a, make a baby together. That's where babies come from. Um, but now imagine that little kid is about to graduate from high school. And they come back to you and they say, I'm going to ask you again. Where do babies come from? You're going to give them a different answer. Hopefully you've been talking to them throughout the, the years. Consistency. Parents, we've got to start talking early and keep talking regularly but you're gonna give them a different answer when they're about ready to graduate from high school. You might talk about medical technology and all the amazing things that's done for the way babies are born and infant mortality rate. You might add to your answer to the question. It's the first answer was true, the second answer is true. Now maybe they're a medical student and somehow you're magically their professor. 
You might give them this answer that I found on the internet. The union of the sperm and the ovum, synonymous with fertilization, namely the onset of pregnancy, marked by implantation of blastocyst into the endometrium. I had to practice those words. <laughs> All of these are true and accurate answers to the same question. All of these are probably valuable and good for people to know. And there's a right place to start, and that right place to start has a natural direction in which we can grow. And I think that's how it is in our life of faith as well. The life of faith starts with the basic of Christ came, died, and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins to give us new life. That must be the starting place. And, that, and yet, hopefully, that's not the ending place because in the kingdom of God, there is always more that God wants to invite us to, to join us in building his kingdom on earth. The basics should lead to the advanced, and the advanced are supported by and strengthened by our brilliance in the basics. But this is all a warning, because apparently if this is true, whatever's going on in the life of the community that the author of Hebrews is writing to, they are forgetting about some of the basics, or maybe they're get, get, getting distracted by some of the advanced things. And so I'll ask us, based on this same warning, are you living a basics-only faith? You've heard the gospel of Christ, and you've received the forgiveness of sins and new life, and yet you've said, eh, I don't really need to go anywhere from here. I'm happy with just, if a mom and a dad love each other, it makes a baby. I'm just going to stay there. Or, for some of us, we get so interested in some of the more complicated, nuanced matters of faith and understanding God's word that we forget where it all started. Our dependence on a God whose love created us and saved us. Are you living a basics-only faith, or are you letting your pursuit of maturity cause you to forget that starting place. Sure enough, the author actually gives us a case study with this next verse, um, a, a particular hairy verse in the New Testament. Much ink has been spilled over its meaning, and I will answer all the questions and give the final word this morning. Thank you for laughing, because uh, that's probably not true. But here's what the author says next. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. In the world of theological textbooks, they name this question, is it possible to lose your salvation and or is there any sin that's so great you can never come back to faith? And sure enough, Christians who have studied this passage throughout history have come to different answers on that question. Huh, shocking. Different people come to different answers. Um, you can find a couple other passages in Scripture that say what sounds like a, a pretty similar thing. But anytime you come to a, a, a tricky passage, there's two things that I talk about a lot that we need to remember to do. We need to remember first to look at the context. When the author said these things, what were they in the middle of talking about? Because the context is always going to inform what the author's trying to say. 
Is the context speaking to a six-year-old child or is the context speaking to a medical student? The context shapes our understanding. The second thing we always want to do in a tricky part of Scripture is we want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. What other Scriptures help us understand what this author must be saying? So let me talk about those two things briefly. First of all, what is the context of this passage? Well, like we just said, the context is a sermon written by a pastor to a congregation they know, and the sermon is written to try and urge that congregation to continue in faith. It is, as we said in previous sermons, a long word of exhortation. Exhortation being encouragement designed to incite action. So the author here is trying to encourage people to live lives of faith. They're not, at this point, in my reading, trying to distinguish some technical definition of levels of sin, but rather they're trying to provoke faithful living. One author summarized the purpose of the book up to this point as, the author of Hebrews urges us to live lives of humble repentance. Humble being, if we recognize Jesus is greater than all things, then we'll recognize with a healthy humility our place in the universe. And that we're seeking not to figure everything out on our own, but to humbly and dependently follow God. And repentance being turning away from sin, selfishness, all that's broken in the world, and turning towards the good gifts of God. You might say that humble repentance is the core basic of the Christian faith, that starting point which never runs its course and always gets there, and yet that starting point from which we pursue maturity. So if the context is an author encouraging the church to live lives of humble repentance, then that says to me, maybe we shouldn't overemphasize this one word, it is impossible, and maybe we should take it as a rhetorical device to say, hey, the power of sin is real. Don't lose hope, don't lose energy, don't lose focus in your faith, but keep moving forward. And sure enough, if I move on to step two and say, okay, well, what does the rest of Scripture have to say about this? Turns out the rest of Scripture seems to say anybody who embraces a godly humility and repents, turning away from sin towards God, anybody who does that will be welcomed from God. I came up with so many examples, I just had to pick three or four of them, but let me give you a couple examples. First Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Colossian church, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. James, the brother of Jesus, quoting from the Proverbs, God gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And on the topic of repentance, Jesus said, watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent. You must forgive them. In another version of a similar story, Jesus said 
God forgives seven times, 70 times, which is maybe just an equation to say a whole lot. Maybe there's no end to God's forgiveness of humble and repentant people. My last kind of biblical thought on this is, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, if you read the first six chapters of the book of Genesis, a part of the Bible that everybody in the first audience reading the letter to Hebrews would have been very familiar with, you can summarize those first six chapters as saying, left unchecked, sin will always grow, and it will grow to the point of overwhelming. Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, I believe, says, that humanity became so evil that every thought and desire of the heart was only evil all the time. And the story of Genesis continues by talking about how God sought to put the power of sin in check, bring it under control, dampen its influence on the world and in our lives. And so in Christ, if we're willing to acknowledge that sin, left unchecked, is only going to grow, How do we receive the help of God to put that in check in our lives? What is this warning and encouragement the author is giving us? Well, the way we hold sin in check is we live lives of humble repentance, never forsaking the basics of the faith that are our anchor in all things. But then the author, having talked about some heavy things and given some stern warnings, kind of brings the mood back up at the very end and says, I gave you all these warnings, but we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation, which brings us full circle to say the author actually believes this congregation is filled with women and men of sincere and genuine faith, and his warning serves to encourage them to stay true to the course they've already been walking. And he ends this whole section with a specific example of what does it look like to continue on in this faith that we're living. And the encouragement given is to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. If we're willing to acknowledge that life is kind of like a a moving walkway, except the direction it's moving often is contrary to the direction we want to go. And if we want to be the sorts of people who keep walking and progressing in that faith, one of the ways we do that is we look around and we say, who are the lives of the women and men around us? Maybe especially those who are five, 10, 20 years down the road, that we'd be willing to say, I want my life of faith to look like their life of faith. This brought to my mind um, a book written by Uh, my favorite Roman emperor. I'm sure you have a favorite. I'd be happy to compare notes after worship. Uh, But Marcus Aurelius, he's the emperor who inspired uh, the, the character in the movie Gladiator. He did, in fact, have a friend named Maximus, and in the movie Gladiator, Maximus was friends with Marcus Aurelius. So there's some good historical basis. And then a whole lot of, you know, fiction. But Aurelius wrote a book called The Meditations. And it was basically a book he wrote to himself as a sort of guide for how he could be a quality leader as a Roman emperor. It's broken into 12 different chapters or books. And the entire first chapter 
is a list of people who have made an impact on Marcus's life and the specific things Aurelius learned from each of those people. Some of them a bit humorous and silly, but many of them quite serious. He starts the whole book by saying, these are the people whose lives I want to imitate. I'll give you a couple examples because it's that good. From my father, manliness. <laughs> From Diognetus, to avoid frivolous enthusiasms, to distrust what miracle mongers and magicians say about charms and the like. Very good advice to follow. From Catullus, not to ignore a friend's criticism, even if it happens to be unreasonable, but to try to restore his usual friendliness. Aurelius goes on to talk about the challenges of leadership, um, the challenges of his work of leading the Roman Empire in what for him was a very messy time in its history. Here's another great little piece of advice from Aurelius. Say to yourself in the morning, I shall meet people who are interfering, ungracious, insolent, full of guile, deceitful, and antisocial. I don't know if you really should say that to yourself every morning. But he goes on. They have all become like that because they have no understanding of good and evil. I have no way of knowing whether Aurelius ever read the letter to the Hebrews, but it's striking to me that he makes the same statement that the author of Hebrews is making, maturity, and the maturity that leads to upright living involves it's necessary that we are understanding of the difference between good and evil. But as I was thinking about this opening chapter of Aurelius, as I was thinking about the letter to the Hebrews, it just struck me, this call to imitate those who through faithfulness and patience have run the race with perseverance. And here's how I kind of summarize the landing point of Hebrews. What you celebrate, you imitate. If we're going to heed this warning and seek to stay true on the course of faith, do we have people whose lives we celebrate so that we might imitate their faithful living. Which brings us as always to the question of, what are you gonna do? My, my desire is that we would not simply know God's word. I think the knowledge of God's word is always valuable, but it's also not sufficient. We must take that knowledge and let it lead us to living according to God's word. So let me give you just a few questions to prompt your reflection on what am I gonna do in my life to apply God's word to my days? First, have you mastered the basics? Have you pursued brilliance the basics? Are you living a life daily of humble repentance? Recognizing that we must humble ourselves before God, turn our lives away from all that is broken and evil and sinful in the world, and turn ourselves constantly back to the God who made us, who loved us, who forgives us, and who gives us his life. But if we're living that way, then we must ask from that starting point, are you growing, am I growing towards maturity? How foolish would be the basketball player 
that practiced the free throw and practiced the jump shot all day, every day, but never bothered to learn the difference between the end of a game where you want to hold the ball and run down the clock and the end of a game where you need to get a shot off right away. I don't care how good you are at the jump shot. If you don't know that more advanced part of faith, you're going to be losing a lot of games, and you're not going to be starting pretty quick on your team. I uh, have read in a couple different places this pretty fascinating um, social scientific experiment. It was a college photography professor who over the course, I think it was over the course of a few years, took his intro to, to photography course, and he every year he broke it into two groups. To the first group he said, okay, at the end of the semester, here's how I'm going to grade you. You're going to turn in one photograph, and it needs to be the best photograph. And I'm going to grade you on how good your one photograph is. That's your grade. One picture, make it good. To the other group, he said, I don't care how good your photos are. All you need to do is turn in 100 photos. If you can take, develop, and turn in 100 photos, I will give you an A. I don't care about the quality, I only care about the quantity. Then at the end of the semester, he would take all the photos, he would give the grades, and then he would sort through them, and he would pick out what he felt were the best quality photos. And you know what he found? More often than not, the, the very best quality photos were taken by the students who focused on quantity, who, you might say, by constant use, had mastered the basics and grown to maturity in this skill of photography. The ones who sort of just said, oh, I just got to get one good picture. They would get all stuck in their heads, and is this, is this image good enough? Is the lighting good enough? And they wouldn't take photos. They would just try to find the one best one. But the ones who, by constant use, took many photos, more often than not, turned in the best quality photos at the end of the course. May it be so as well in our lives of faith. And last but not least, remember, there are better things. Look around your life and ask yourself, who are the women and men, maybe 5, 10, 20 years down the road, who I look at and I think, I want my life of faith to look like theirs when I get there. And I'm going to start naming and celebrating so that I might imitate the faith they are demonstrating to me. The author C.S. Lewis has a great little phrase talking about how the kingdom of God never comes to an end, but rather you can always go further up and farther in. God always has a next step on the journey for us if we follow him in our faith. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that we would hear from your word a warning that we live in a world that is filled with temptations and powers that would drag us down and hold us back and, and we're never free from the risk of that sin in the world. And yet may we hear that warning not as a way to get us stuck or distracted or confused but as an encouragement to follow you in faith. An encouragement that God, you are doing good work in our lives and through our lives. God, I pray that every one of us would commit to daily living in the basics of our faith. 
every day making the first thought in our heads and every night making the last thought of our hearts a humble repentance and commitment to you. And God, may we together spur one another on to live this faith as your people building your kingdom here on earth as it already is so in heaven. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.